In the last episode, you met Billy Deakle of Florida, a pilot who had tried his hand running a legitimate aviation business before turning to smuggling drugs when faced with losing everything. After several false starts, and then a dangerous but successful trip to Colombia, it wasn't long before his first arrest, the first of several. The last one, and the conviction that followed, would send Billy to prison for life. Stay tuned for this episode of Fly by Night. For a time, Billy's plan of putting away enough money from smuggling seemed to be working. Even though he had spent a few months in jail in Jamaica, he was settling into a routine of a normal run to Colombia or Belize, followed by a big payday. Then on what should have been a routine flight, something occurred that scars him until this day. That day started with a minor mechanical problem and ended with him landing 800 miles away with someone else's blood still on him. That morning, battery was dead, and I had a hand-propped the airplane. So when I got to my loading spot in Belize, I told everybody, I said, look, I'm not going to turn it off because, you know, fuel-injected uh, engine going to be pretty hard to start hand-propping it. I told them I wasn't going to turn it off, and everybody be careful. Well, when they were loading it, one guy that I had never seen before, wasn't permanent on the crew. There was uh, a crew working the sugar cane right adjacent to where we were loading. And I gave D. seen what was happening, and he just came over there hoping to uh, make some extra money. You know, hey, I'll help, help these guys out. They probably pay better chopping sugar cane. He almost walked into the prop already one time and i yelled at him and stopped him so i closed one door had a little safety meeting and went uh stood by the prop where they would have to walk around me and around the prop to get to the uh door to put the body everybody's doing just right and uh going around me going putting their bail of body in and then going back and getting up this fella, he went around me. He goes and puts his bellet body in, and he's just heading go head back and get another bell. I guess in his mind, he thought that uh, it was just too far to go around me. And you know, you can't the props invisible when it's turning. So it, it shocked me. I couldn't believe he was doing it. He sets the bell down. He spins around there, and he heads right straight between me and the airplane, which is heading right for the propeller, I uh, I yelled at him. And so when I yelled at him, he turned his head and was looking me straight in the eyes when he, when he hit the prop. His facial expression was, why are you yelling at me? You could tell that's what he was thinking. Just a split second later, when he stuck his head in the prop, he dropped straight down. The prop caught him in the back and tried to, one of the blades did, and tried to pull him under the plane, but it didn't. It wasn't enough room. It picked the plane up and it sat it back. And as soon as it sat it off of it, it almost shut down. 
she fired back up to get the fella. I mean, he was dead. I mean, there was nothing you could do. So moved him out of the way. I go around to check on the cycle of the prop to see, you know, what's going on in there. If it's, if it works or not, if the trailer still was working, I looked up and the whole crew's they're already loaded in the truck and they're leaving. I don't have all the gas. I don't have all the pot. I got about 300 pounds of pot, 70, 80 gallons of gas. And it, I was usually taking like 90 to get down there. I said, oh, man, I'm in a, I'm in a jam, a, a big one. But I couldn't stay there. Everybody's gone. I got on the radio and called them and told them. They said, no, they, they was getting out of there. So I, I gave them a pretty good cussing out on the radio, telling them, you know, sorry, cowards, and everything else. And uh, that didn't do any good. Having just witnessed a man die by walking into his prop, then being deserted by the rest of his crew, and wondering if the airplane would hold together for the long flight home, Billy was well aware that there were crucial numbers that didn't add up. Without a full load of fuel, trying to make it to the makeshift strip just beyond Eglin Air Force Base in Florida didn't seem possible. Instead, as he flew north, Billy remembered a large and still undeveloped subdivision in Apalachicola, Florida the bulge in the Florida panhandle coastline that he might be able to reach. There were roads there to land on, where he could abandon the plane and his load of marijuana and walk to a phone and call for help in getting away. But then favorable winds tempted him into a fateful decision. He would take the Cessna 210 right down on the deck, just feet above the waters of the Gulf, and he would fly right across the middle of Eglin Air Force Base at treetop level, hoping he could get through before they could scramble an aircraft to catch him. That would be his most direct course for an attempt to make it to the landing strip in the Blackwater River State Forest. And that's what he did. I mean, that'd be crazy to do under any other circumstance, but the circumstances I was under, you know, everything was already crazy anyway. Cut right through the, through the middle of Eglin Air Force Base at treetop level, and then where there was clearance, I would dump, dump down below the trees. When I could hit more trees, I'd go up over the trees, skim top of them, and back down. I was thinking, I said, well, that seems like the best way, chance I got to making it through here. And I made it through. time I get to where I was going, uh, daggone it, there was a big thunderstorm. looked like it's sitting right over the field. I said, boy, it's a heck of a day. And I go through all this, and I get there, and there's a thunderstorm. So I got there and landed, and when, when uh, we unloaded, uh, I told Freddie, I said, that battery's, I'm sure it's charged now. I said, that took, that prop took a pretty good lick. We probably need to uh, shut it off and check with damage. With his disabled plane now empty of its load of pot, Billy, his friend Freddie Crow, and the others decided that they would remove the wings. And using a trailer offered by the landowner who had provided the field, they would tow the plane to a barn and store it till it could be picked up. Somehow that plan worked. It was a sad, strange, and remarkable day for Billy Deagle. A day that started many hours to the south as he watched a man die, then being left solo on a long flight home constantly watching his fuel gauges, flying through the restricted airspace of a military base, 
and then discovering how badly damaged his plane was. The plane that had somehow safely delivered him to a farmer's field, while wearing the blood of a poor, unfortunate man who only wanted to earn a few more dollars. All of this in the service of delivering Colombian marijuana to smokers in the U.S. Of all the stories Billy can tell, and he has many, there is another that speaks to the dangers of transporting drugs from Central and South America to the U.S. It should have been another easy flight on a good day for flying, but it soon turned dangerous, and only a quick decision and a lot of luck allowed him to return home, and even that took days. Oh, I was out, yeah, I was out uh, like 40, 50 miles out over to go. And uh, when it first uh, did its uh, coughing uh, spasm, but it, it it started running again. It it's, it done that, and smoke flew in the cockpit and all kind of stuff. I said, "Oh my gosh!" I started straight back heading back to land. The smoke cleared up. It's cranked up. It's running just like normal. But I knew it weren't going to keep going, so I. You know, I didn't uh, say, oh, well, it's running. I'm going to go try and make it on in. I said, oh, it's running, but it ain't going to run long. Act like it was going to quit again. Spit and sputter and uh, actually shut off and then crank back up, run a little further. And then finally it done its, uh, I call it the grand finale. It filled the cockpit up with smoke, spit and sputter, and quit completely. And that's when I... Uh, I had to glide the rest of the way, and that was uh, that was an experience. Deciding whether to land with my deer down or up, I decided, well, I'm gonna belly it in on this sand because I'm afraid I might flip if I have my gear down. So well, I made a belly landed, but when I hit, I was thinking, you know, wonder how far this is gonna slide. That thing went and skipped one time. And then whenever it hit the next time, it planted and went straight up on its nose, almost flipped over on its back. It's straight up and it balanced on its nose for just a second. And it went over to the right, right wing down and uh, like a wheelbarrow and it, it fell backwards. And it throwed me into the uh, instrument panel of my knuckles, bloodied some of my knuckles and all from being thrown forward so fast but I, I got out and uh and i walked uh like five or six hours towards town when when i finally walked all the way to town i walked through the middle of town and i went to where the ferry had unloaded and the ferry had just unloaded and was leaving and i done asked a few people if they spoke english and i hadn't run into nobody who spoke english and when I was at the at the ferry, uh, a fellow walked over to me and asked me, did I speak English? And that's the guy that uh, saved me, basically, that I worked with and got, uh, he was first mate on a, a fishing boat. And that's what the boat that I rented, the boat that he was first mate on to get me out of there to, uh, they took me from Isla de Colbox to uh, Isla Mujeres. Then I caught the ferry from Isla, 
well, Harris to Cancun. A friend of mine came down, brought some money. He gave uh, left on with the uh, Blasians, you know, for the load that they had lost or we had lost. And then uh, went up to Cancun and caught an airplane to Tijuana. Along with his friend who came from the States, Billy planned to walk across the border at Tijuana. But at the last minute, they decided that was too risky. And they made the long trek back to Cancun and then Belize, where he would eventually fly out on a smuggling plane brought from the States. Before we turn to the day when Billy stared down the barrel of a cop's gun in a Pensacola, Florida parking lot, it's a good time to meet someone who played the major role in making sure the Deacle family has remained a family. If there's one person who should be given credit for holding their family together during the years Billy was actively smuggling, and the years he was a fugitive living under an assumed name, and the years he spent in prison under a life sentence, is Kay Deacle, his wife. Sometimes, their lives together have been tumultuous. But that wasn't the way it started many years ago when a teenage Kay stopped to buy gas for a new car, and Billy walked over trying to come up with a way to talk with her. I pulled into a, a gas station. My mother had just gotten me a 1969 brand new Plymouth Roadrunner, uh, gold with black stripes. And I could see that there was another guy or a guy over there gassing his car up. And I think, oh, this guy's going to come over and flirt with me. And, uh, you know, that that would be nice. Maybe he thinks I'm cute. And um, he comes around and does eventually get to my window and leans in and asks me, he said, what do you have under the hood? 383 is up on the hood, and I said, uh, well, I guess it's a 383. I don't know much about engines, but those numbers surely mean something. Billy's side of that story is that uh, he lost all words when he saw how pretty I was, that he could not uh, really ask me to, on a date because he, he just it lost everything. He was too nervous. I, I just think he... Uh, he wasn't sure of himself, I guess, and uh, decided that the car was the best way to go. Kay and Billy soon started dating, eventually married and had children. Like many young couples, they struggled, and those struggles included going deep into debt, as you heard in part one of this story. Kay Deacle remembers the night that Billy revealed his plan for how he would fix everything, and it wasn't a plan she agreed with. He did not discuss those plans with me before he actually signed on to start smuggling. We had had financial problems, pretty heavy in debt at that time. I figured, you know, we would just keep robbing from Peter to pay Paul is basically what we were doing. We were, you know, paying on this credit card, buy this credit card. I had a job and he had a job and we were just going to make it. So uh, he took me out to dinner one night and which was unusual because we didn't have money to go out to eat. He told me of his scheme to do a one-time smuggling adventure that would net him $100,000 and he would never do it again. 
to my knowledge, I don't think I ever agreed to it. Did a lot of crying that night, but I knew him well enough to know that I was not going to change his mind, that he was going to do what he wanted to do. That was basically my first introduction to him deciding to start smuggling. Later, we'll hear from Kay again. But when we return, you'll hear how Billy Deakle ended up staring down the barrel of a gun and staring down a sentence of life in prison. For almost three years, knowing he was wanted by multiple law enforcement agencies, Billy lived the life of a fugitive, using the name Jim Lang. He kept smuggling, but as with almost every criminal enterprise, his loose-knit group began to fray around the edges, with more than one of his co-conspirators deciding to become informants. While Ed Hudson's career as a cop was well underway in North Florida, he hadn't been serving on a special anti-smuggling task force for long when he was assigned to help find and arrest Billy Deakle and his co-conspirators. Several members of the group had already been arrested, and Billy was considered the last big catch, their most wanted suspect. Ed Hudson had heard that Billy was in the Pensacola area and that he was a man of habit with a fondness for several bars and a Bennigan's restaurant. So on that final day of Billy's life as a fugitive, Hudson saw something that convinced him to speed to that restaurant. I was a narcotics investigator for the Escambia County, Florida Sheriff's Department, just working drugs. Well, I joined into a what was already a very lengthy investigation. It was being conducted by uh, DEA and uh, U.S. Customs. I had known of Billy's partner, a guy named Freddie Crow, from working in patrol in the north end of Escambia County, Florida. The investigation involved all of those people. Then, then I was asked to sort of assist in the investigation uh, after I became involved in narcotics investigation just simply because I knew of a good many of the people involved in the conspiracy. Well, Billy had actually been a federal fugitive for about three years. I knew that Billy had been indicted by a federal grand jury, and I, I, along with some of the agents that were involved in investigating the case, had interviewed an informant that gave us a, a good bit of information about their activities in the area, that they, they liked to frequent one of the bars in, in Pensacola, and there was a restaurant. Uh, called Bennigan's that they like to go to, and uh, I was I was told that if I ever saw any of the people headed to Pensacola, that they were probably either going to the to the bar or, or to Bennigan's. Well, that afternoon, as I was going to work, uh, two of the guys from Century, where I, where I used to work in that area, uh, I saw them speeding down toward Pensacola. So I just took the opportunity then to to go by. Bennigan's and and there I was able to see the car that that we knew that Billy would was getting around and so I just sat up on it and I called for backup from the narcotics unit and then I saw Billy exit the um, the restaurant and go to his vehicle and I was afraid he was going to leave so I, I gave the word to, to go ahead and take him down 
I drove in front of this vehicle, and then I had other people come in from behind. His car door was open. I didn't know what was inside the car. As it turned out, there were several firearms inside the car. I got the impression, and Billy kind of confirmed it later on, that he gave some thought to diving back into the car to get one. So I, I think I probably made the right call in, in going ahead and, and drawing down on him. Then it looked like he was going to run. Matter of fact, he started backing up, but he backed up into the arms of one of the other investigators, and, and it was pretty much over with then. So I walked out to the car to get some money out, got the money and, and closed the door and was going to go walk back into Bennigan's. And here come, uh, I was surrounded. Here here comes Ed Hudson. I didn't know his name then, but I, I know now. And he uh, had, uh, had a gun. He was walking real fast toward me and pulled a gun out. We took hands up. There I look around. I'm thinking about trying to run. But I look around and I, there's too many people. I was caught. <laughs> and so they put me in the back of the car, head to the courthouse, have me uh, say no bond and all that. And wind up having a little hearing at the courthouse. And then they take me to Stanley County Jail. I stayed there 10 months. And then they sent me to uh, designate me to Five State Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. So I. Uh, they put me on con air, and there I go. In the Deacle family, there's a curious history, one that divides many of its men into those who serve the law and those who break it. In the branches of the family tree before Billy and his brother Bob, there were lawmen and lawbreakers in the same generation. According to Bob Deacle, that was nearly always the case. Their great-grandfather was a judge. Their grandfather was a sheriff with brothers who were told to leave the county and never return. Their own father was at one time a deputy sheriff with a brother described by his father as a gangster. And so it wasn't unusual in the Billy and Bob generation for one to become an outlaw and the other to become a well-known and well-respected prosecutor. Bob Deacle recalls his brother as a risk-taking kid and how he had hoped Billy's decision to become a pilot would change him. Billy was mischievous. Uh, he was always doing something, was always doing things that were, that I thought were ill-advised and or dangerous. He had a need for adrenaline. He was a drag racer and would go out uh, on lonely highways as a, as a teenager and drag race all the time. Uh, any kind of mischief you want to get into, he got into it. Fist fights, underage drinking, any kind of thing you want to do like that, he, he, he wanted to do it. Uh, I, on the other hand, was uh, more sedentary. Almost always had a book in my hand. You know, any time that you wanted to go with somewhere or do something, Bill was ready to go, I was somewhat reluctant. He came back from Miami talking about flying. You know, when I found out that he was interested in flying and that he wanted to fly, you know, that sounded like a, a good career path. But he was motivated to learn about flying, and he uh, uh, and he got his, his private pilot's license, and then he got his uh, commercial license, he got his instructor's license, got his multi-engine rating. 
and he was uh, just a, a natural at, at, uh, at that. If anyone should have reason to hold a grudge against a family member whose actions cast a shadow over their own lives, it's Bob Deakle. And here's why. All of the time, his younger brother was an international drug smuggler. Bob Deakle was a Florida prosecutor of high-profile cases, including murder cases and drug cases. Yes, Bob Deakle was prosecuting other drug smugglers. And that would have been more than enough to engender ill will on Bob's part. But when cops came to Bob and told him for the first time that his brother was a smuggler and that he should talk Billy into becoming an informant, Bob Deakle was the lead prosecutor in the final trial of famed serial killer Ted Bundy. In fact, it was Billy Deakle's brother Bob who secured the last conviction that sent Ted Bundy to the electric chair. I was a drug prosecutor for 20-some-odd years, and I was involved in a prosecution of all kinds of drug cases, uh, including drug smuggling cases, at the time that I learned for a fact that uh, Billy was a drug smuggler. Kind of embarrassing to go into court and uh, ask a jury to convict a drug smuggler in a town where lots of people knew that my brother was a drug smuggler. I didn't know of it, that was what the rumor was. The first time Billy got arrested, he was arrested by Jamaican authorities. And I was, at that point, preparing to uh, try the the most notorious case I ever tried, State of Florida versus Theodore Robert Bundy. When, uh, when Billy got arrested, the uh, newspaper headlines, and there were a lot more newspaper headlines than there would have been if he hadn't been my brother, well, the newspaper headline says, Bundy prosecutor's brother arrested for drug smuggling. But they were using his, his career path to reflect on mine, and I wasn't real happy about that. But I went to my boss, uh, who's state attorney, Jerry Blair, and I said, I know this is an embarrassment to the office, and I will resign. And he said, no, I don't want you to resign. He said, we got, we got Ted Bundy to try. I can't afford to lose you because you know so much about the case. And I said, okay, I'll stay with it. And I did. Things rocked on for a while. And the uh, FDLE agents, who were good friends of mine, came to me and they said, okay, Bob said, we'll give you a heads up. We're fixing to arrest your brother for drug smuggling. And I said, well, I wish you hadn't told me that. I said, because... You know, if you go to catch him and he ain't there, you're going to think that I tipped him off. And if you arrest him, uh, my parents are going to ask me if I knew. And I have trouble lying. I was not a very popular person with my parents when they asked me if I knew. Fly by Night could do a full episode on the choices Billy made at the time of his arrest and on the many years he served in several prisons how he spent day after day working in a prison factory, his treasured visits with his family. But you'll find detailed descriptions of those years in Billy and Kay's book. More on that later. The remarkable story here is not so much how Billy served his time, because in reality, at that point, he had no other choice. 
What is unusual is the choice that Kay Deagle made. The choice to hold on to their marriage as she raised their two daughters as a single mom. And how she changed her own life professionally to provide for the girls. And how she never lost hope that one day she and Billy could be together again. When Billy left in 1988, I was 38 years old and very lonely. It was, I had two children that were, you know, they were coming up in life and teenagers. And I felt, always felt that I was supposed to do something more with my life than what I was doing. And I don't know that I would have changed my life if it hadn't been because I was lonely. My sister had gone back to school to get her degree in education, elementary education. And we had both worked in the school system. I said, you know, I enjoyed that. So I decided that I was going to go back to school as well but not elementary, uh, I was going to go to high school and teach history. So that's what I did to pass some of the time. I'm, I, you know, I could go to class and study and, and raise the kids. It made life a little easier. It made life, time go by a little easier, I guess, uh, not faster, but easier. So I, I did go back and changed my career, and um, I became a teacher about a year after Billy was uh, arrested. And luckily, as soon as I graduated in August, I got a job in September teaching, and uh, which was a blessing that, I, that that happened. So I ended up doing two jobs. Both of them in education. I worked in uh, the day teaching, and at night I taught night school. I had that part-time job in education as well. I'd go to school about 7.30 in the morning and get home about 9 at night. I loved it. I loved teaching, so it wasn't something that I dreaded. I did that until just before Billy got out. I, I, would, I worked those two jobs. So I went back and I got my master's in educational counseling. Then about six or seven years after, well, maybe about eight years after that, a position came open for assistant principal. So I went back again and got my educational leadership degree, my master's in that, and became assistant principal, led charge of guidance at Columbia High School here in Lake City where we live. And then eventually, I uh, retired as director of secondary education for our county. I don't think I would have done that if, uh, if Billy had, I guess, had not done the things he did. Billy's unwillingness to cooperate in securing the conviction of others had put him into a position where he had nothing with which to bargain. With a mandated maximum sentence of life, short of a presidential pardon or clemency, he would, as the judge had said, remain in prison until his relatives picked up his remains. But several advocacy groups took on Billy as a cause. And though their early efforts failed, a change in position by the then U.S. Attorney General led President Obama to take a look at Billy's case. 
and his first hint at his new future came when he was asked to submit new paperwork. Yeah, I, I had already resigned in the fact that I was going to die because the time I was in there, I seen plenty of people dying in there. I have no problem keeping you until you, you die. That's okay with them. I figured that was going that was going to be what happened to me. Because uh, I, I knew, I said, that God, hey, this is insane as far as I was concerned. From uh, non-violent marijuana, they don't take your whole life. And really, it's not. I said, I, they are not charging me, sentencing me for the marijuana. They're sentencing me for not cooperating. I started being contacted by people wanting to help. It takes a special person to try and help people that were in the situation that we were in. You know, you're mostly forgotten. After uh, I'd been turned down that one time, Amy Prova, she got in touch with Case and told Case that tell Billy it's time he needs to send it in again. He needs to he needs to resubmit it. And and so that's what I did. It, the second one that passed that they granted was no different than the first one. They just, you know, what, what had changed? <laughs> Nothing other than a year had passed. So I basically set the same thing back in, and, and it was granted. The uh, case manager, whoever it was, whatever he was, he says, well, you, your lawyer's going to be calling you in a few minutes and all that. So I just sat there, and the lawyer called, and that was a, a lady, uh, Caitlin Nadolf. New York, some uh, law school up there in New York. She told me, she says, uh, President uh, Obama has granted your request for uh, clemency. He says, you'll be released on April the 15th. I said, yep, open the door, let me go. I'm thinking, I said, till I get out uh, the other side of this fence, uh, I'm afraid they're going to say, you know, we made a mistake, uh, not not uh, William Deacon, it was William something else's clemency. Now when he sees Billy, his brother Bob says he sees the man that he believed Billy always had in him. For Kay and Billy, that tough year of readjustment, of learning to live together again, is long behind them, as they enjoy their second chance at life together. I see the person he could have been all his life if he hadn't taken the wrong path. You know, he's... Uh, an excellent husband, a doting grandfather, a uh, regular attender at church services. Uh, he's living the life, uh, the domestic life that he could have lived if he hadn't been a drugs mother. Anytime you commit a crime, even if it's a, quote, victimless crime, there are victims. And you victimize your family, you victimize your friends, and you victimize yourself. Now, he spent 25 years of his life in prison, which I thought at the time and still think was an excessive amount of time. That first year, I thought I didn't think we were going to make it. Uh, it there was a lot of arguing, <laughs> but gradually things got better. And I probably can say these are the best years that we've ever had together now. Well, we're retired now, and I, I uh, take my granddaughter to school every morning, and most of the time I pick her up, and we go uh, watch her play soccer and uh, softball and uh, 
anything else. It, you know, it's just uh, I do the uh, I mow the yard and I do uh, uh, help my wife with the housework and just living life and enjoying it. You know, I'm as happy as I've ever been in my life. Billy and Kay have written a book about his years as a smuggler. That book is called Flying High with Gringo Billy, the nickname given to him by a drug boss on his first landing in Colombia. Among the number of books written by pilots who decided to tell their stories, Billy and Kay's book is unusual, and that's truly their book. For years, Kay Deacle kept a journal, and her contributions fill out the story, because it never was just Billy's story. For all the years he was flying drugs, and then the many years he spent in prison, there was a family back home, the family that Kay kept together. You can find Flying High with Gringo Billy at Amazon, and you'll find a link for the book in the page for this episode at the show website. You'll also find some additional photos of Kay and Billy there. With the passage of time and the changes that brings, when you look at pilots like Billy and others that flew drugs from the islands, Central America, and Colombia, it's a stretch to see them as daring young risk-takers, adventure seekers, and outlaws. What you see now are senior citizens, perhaps grandfathers who have retired to a quieter, slower lifestyle. They may play a little golf, do a little gardening, perhaps sip a bit of whiskey at sunset, and should their grandkids ask, that remnant of a smuggler still inside them may briefly reappear with a stunning story to tell. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly by Night. Fly by Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Henrik Anderson, with sound design and original music by Ave Stites. Show art is by Aini, with additional design by Ave Stites. The show is produced, hosted, and edited by Charles Stites. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review, and subscribe to Fly By Night wherever you get your podcasts. And for photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.